0: Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We've been looking the last few weeks at the question, the issue, why is it so hard to believe in today's world? I want to thank Dave for speaking last Sunday, for challenging us in our thinking, but also how what he said fits into what we've been looking at. Thus far, we've looked at a number of things. First of all, what is the good news? The gospel it tells us that something has happened. It happens within a context. that is, there is a backstory. It reveals that the future has changed, but it also changes the present moment. As we saw that in the resurrection, Jesus basically is at the end of the story, but comes back into the middle of the story to tell us how things will turn out. He commissioned his disciples to share, to proclaim this good news. And when Paul and the, the apostles proclaimed the good news, they were telling people that something had happened that had changed the world. The world is now a different place. And they were summoning people to be a part of that new world. The second thing we looked at was the theology of belief and unbelief. What we found was with regard to those made in God's image, human beings, we are called to believe. We are called to trust in the Creator. He is to be trusted that he commands what is right and he promises what is true. And we show that we believe him or that we trust him by obeying him. We see this with Adam and Eve. They are given commands and some of the commands they obey. Adam names the animals. They take care of the garden. But there is one particular command that they do not obey because Eve does not trust that what the creator has said is right And that's what the serpent tells her. She does not believe that the promise is true. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are now all by nature unbelievers. That is our default setting. We were born in unbelief. Belief is something that is only possible by the grace of God. Then we looked at the characteristics of the modern world, because this is where we live. And this is what makes it difficult to believe. We saw that the modern world is a place of uh, separations and absences. It is a world of suspicion. It is a secular world. It is a world in which knowing is now different than it used to be. What we find in the New Testament, and here particularly in our text today, we will see it illustrated, is that when Paul and the Apostles proclaimed the good news, they did so to three classes of people first to the Jews. And then secondly, to Gentiles who either had converted to Judaism, that is, they were proselytes, or those who didn't really convert, but they went to synagogues every Sabbath and they listened to scripture. They're known as God-fearers. And then the third group of people are pagans. We find these three classes of people mentioned in this incident in which Paul goes to Athens. Uh, Bear with me. It's from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the whole city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group group of Epicurean, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Verse 21, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, "To an unknown God." Now what you worship is something unknown, as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands." And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman, Damaris, and a number of others. Uh, This is a controversial passage for many people. People have questioned Paul's wisdom in the approach that he took in speaking at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, as we know it. Um, They felt that rather than preaching the gospel, the good news, he was dabbling in philosophy. Um, That's a different subject. I'll leave it for another time. But I would have you consider that in verse number 18, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus. So I think that their argument fails there. What I do want to point out is something that C.S. Lewis mentions in one of his essays, Modern Man and His Categories of Thought. The three classes of people that the early church preached to believed three things in common. That is, the Jews, the Gentiles who converted or who at least followed Judaism, and the pagans. Even though they were very different, They had three beliefs in common. First of all, they believed in the supernatural. Even the Epicureans, who believed that the gods were just sort of dawdling and not doing anything, did in fact believe in the gods. Secondly, they were conscious of sin and fear judgment. The whole sacrificial system in each system uh, was because they believed they had done something wrong, they needed purification of some type, and therefore they killed animals. Thirdly, they all believed that the world had once been better than it was now. The Jews believed in the fall. Adam and Eve had sinned. The Stoics believed in a golden age. And even the common pagan believed, in fact, while they had reverence for their heroes of the past, for their ancestors and the ancient lawgivers. And if you consider what we just read, Paul's audience is tracking with Paul all the way up to verse number 30. God as the creator, as the sustainer, as the ruler, the father, the judge, is not a problem for his listeners. The call to repent is not a problem for his listeners. Um, in verse number 28, Paul, in fact, quotes two pagan uh, authors, one from the 6th century, Epimenides from Crete, for him and him we live and move and have our being, though he was thinking of Ze- uh, Zeus and not uh, the true God. And then Eratos of Cilicia, Paul's home province in the 3rd century, said we are his offspring. So there is some sense of wisdom from the past. So they are with Paul every step of the way. When he talks about judgment, it is not a problem. Where he loses them is when he talks about the resurrection. And it causes many people to reject the message. What I want you to think about today is that these three beliefs that were shared by the Jews... The Gentiles who had converted and pagans are not shared by the people that live or that we live among today. Let's work our way backwards from number three to number one. First of all, people today believe in progress, which implies or assumes that that things are better now than they were in the past. So things in the past were worse than they are now. We're progressing towards something better. Um, And in fact, along with this comes the the idea that as we progress we will leave behind religious beliefs. Um, we'll come to this later but this is a mistaken view because it focuses on expressions of belief rather than conditions of belief but we'll talk about that later. Secondly, people do not believe in judgment. We live in an age supposedly of tolerance and one can hardly imagine that there's such a thing as sin. In fact, it's seen as it's somewhat despicable to speak of someone having committed a sin. And there's certainly not judgment, because this is contrary to tolerance. Let me just say parenthetically, this is a, a hypocritical position, because in fact, one is condemned if perceived as being intolerant, and certain sanctions are believed to be appropriate. That if you don't let people believe whatever they want, then, then maybe you should die something should happen to you, something awful, well, then people do believe in judgment. They do believe in the need for repentance, but they claim not to. And then, number one, generally speaking, although people use the language of the supernatural, they do not believe in something transcendent. Some might argue this point, but I think in a world that is devoid of the metaphysical, what we're left with is purely physical or the natural. I mentioned to you that the first time I went to Brunei, um, that one of the participants, I was, I was working with officials, diplomats, and teacher trainers from nine different uh, Southeast Asian countries. And one of them said, I have a question. He said, um, it seems to me that Americans are very, are very religious people. And I went, oh, <laughs> um, I'm not going to challenge that. But I said, why, why would you say that? He said, well, because they're always saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So they must be religious people. I would say people say, oh my God, all the time, but they don't have any sense of transcendence, that it's, it's in many ways a flat world. There's nothing above, it's just us, and we need to work things out. The reality is that the modern world is a secular world. I talked about this last week, or the other week, I need to flesh this out. What does it mean? Because the word secular can be used in a number of different ways. In a big book, 900 pages by Charles Taylor, called The Secular Age, he says that secular can be used in one of three ways. And if we're not careful, we'll use it in one way, but we actually mean something else. The first is in the classical way that it is used, and this is something that is temporal or earthly, something that is mundane. So, if you wish, those in the church had a sacred vocation, and those who were not in the church had a secular vocation. So there was a division between the sacred and the secular. The second way it is used, and this comes in uh, in light of, or in the wake of the Enlightenment, is that you have this neutral ground. So instead of secular, we might use the word neutral. The public square is seen as secular or neutral. That is, it is allegedly non-religious. Public schools are seen as secular or neutral because they are not tied to any church. Many people today would refer to themselves as secular because they have no religious affiliation. They hold no religious beliefs. This is the version, by the way, of secular when people use the secularization theory um, in which as Sec- as societies become more and more secular, they become less and less religious. This is what they're talking about at this point. Secularization, by the way, is a process that starts at the center of society and moves outward. And you have sort of a ripple effect in which every, uh, well, one by one, institutions of society are freed from any type of religious influence. In this country, in many ways, it began with the government separation of church and state, and yet it was not purely secular because you have in various oaths, so help me God, uh, when Congress opens, you have the chaplain saying a prayer um, and the Pledge of Allegiance in the 1950s, one nation under God. But generally speaking, when you go to work, you don't start with prayer. Uh, When you have a problem at work, Some people might pray, but out of desperation. Uh, But there's a sense in which every aspect of life slowly but surely is freed from any type of religious influence. And so the central aspects of society become neutral or are neutralized from any transcendent or supernatural aspect whatsoever. Um, I think we see this most often today in politics, this, in my opinion, in which many politicians claim to have religious faith but they say that it in fact does not influence their decisions so that you can have a senator who is a devout Roman Catholic who will vote in favor of abortion which is certainly contrary to his religious beliefs um, well because in government it's, it's, secularization has taken place that's, our religion is not supposed to affect what we do This is what most people think of when they hear the word secular today. But the third way that secular is used is, in fact, I think the most operative way way in which it is used, and we don't even realize it. It is, we are secular to the extent that religious belief is seen as optional. It is one option. And so what we see is from the pre-modern world to the modern world is a shift from which Believing in God is not problematic, it's unchallenged to a society in which belief in God is merely seen as an option. Most people think that we are in category two of secular, neutral. The reality is we are in the third category, and that is in part what makes it so difficult to believe. In the past, say in the medieval period, atheism or unbelief, was seen as inconceivable, unimaginable. How could someone not believe in the supernatural? And it's because of the way that they looked at the world. The world was seen as pointing to something more than itself. It was a sign of something more important. Society was understood as being rooted in a higher reality. That when we talk about the kingdom of whatever, it is pointing toward the kingdom of God people lived in an enchanted world the world was charged with presences it was open it was vulnerable it was not self-sufficient but we now live in a modern secular type 3 world and here belief or belief in god is seen as unimaginable it's inconceivable so what changed how did it change and How does this affect us? As those who claim to be the people of God, who believe in God, how does this affect us? In the modern world, people are able to imagine significance within an eminent frame. That is, here, what we can see, what is tangible. They, in fact, do not imagine any aspect of transcendence. That is, Yet there are things we still don't know and that we're trying to figure out, but there is no hierarchy, there is no supernatural thing that's out there that transcends who we are. When you look at us and you look at people a thousand years ago, one of the biggest differences is the things we take for granted, the things we don't think twice about. This is just the way things are. (coughs) Charles Taylor gives five elements of our modern secular, in the third sense, and social imaginary that in fact shows how different we are from what has been in the past and the assumptions that came with them. The first is disenchantment, and this comes from Max Weber. It is a mark of modernity that it disenchants the world. That is, it removes, it evacuates the world of spirits and ghosts in the machine, if you wish. These things are no longer present. As we become more and more advanced, more technological, as we become more secular in the third sense, um, then these mysterious things, these ghosts, these spirits, these transcendent realities are simply seen as disappearing. The magical spiritual world is dissolved and all we're left with is the material world. That's what Weber talks about when he talks about disenchantment, but Taylor suggests something else. And that is, in a disenchanted world, the location of meaning shifts. You see, in the pre-modern world, the world has meaning. The world is real. It's there. It's powerful. It does stuff. In the modern world, Our mind is what determines what the world is. Significance is no longer built in. Rather, it is the property that we give to it. So that something is beautiful if we say, in fact, it is beautiful. Something has value if we say that it has value. We perceive these things internally. And so now everything becomes a matter of the mind Meaning is located not in the world, but in us, the agents who are in the world, who are, if you wish, classifying, categorizing the world. We are the ones who are saying what is what. In the pre-modern world, the world existed quite apart from us. All kinds of non-human beings uh, and non-human things are loaded and charged with meaning, independent of us. You know the, the old question, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a noise? That's a good question to show the difference between pre-modern thinking and post, now we are post-modern thinking, secular modern thinking. Cause we imagine that no it doesn't if in fact we are not there to say yes, it made a noise. In the pre-modern world, things have power. Things can do stuff. Prior to the modern world, human beings are seen as quite vulnerable. To be human is to be open to the outside world. But with disenchantment, we lose that sense of vulnerability. Rather than being vulnerable, the modern person is buffered. We are insulated. We are isolated. We are the ones who are in charge. We are the ones who give order to the world. By the way, this helps explain why pre-modern people saw unbelief as really inconceivable. In an enchanted world in which human beings are vulnerable, when things can do stuff and things have power, the prospect of rejecting a transcendent God is not really the way to be safe. It's not the way to survive. You're really taking your chance not believing in a God or gods or spirits. In general, as Taylor points out, going against God is not an option in an enchanted world. But in a modern world, a disenchanted world, the buffered self can safely not believe. Because after all, I am the one who decides what is what. The second feature of the modern world is the disappearance of the social bond. In the the pre-modern world, not only were things invested with significance apart from us, the social bond itself was enchanted or sacred. The common good, the collective good, was dependent on the social aspects of the community. In a phrase, we're all in this together. The commonwealth, the commonweal, consensus was important to not believe To be a heretic was not an option. It was not a personal matter because you were part of something much larger than yourself. Now, we might look back and see a certain amount of intolerance when societies would burn witches at the stake, for example. I don't approve of burning witches at the stake but you need to understand that they saw themselves as a collective, as a whole, that there was a social bond, and if someone messed up, it affected everyone else. In the same way, you might say that if someone had cancer and needed to have something taken out or amputated, you would do that to save the body. In the same way, in the pre-modern world, society was a body, and if there was a cancer, the cancer needed to be removed. We don't think that way anymore. Today we see the individual as supreme. It's up to the individual if he or she wants to be a heretic. It's their own business. They can do what they want. There's no pressure to get this person back in line. Um, unbelief was not a private matter in the pre-modern world, but in the modern world, unbelief is absolutely, it's absolutely an individual choice. The buffered self is an individual, and he or she can do whatever they want. So instead of being a seamless piece of cloth in which we are all woven together, we are now merely a collection of individuals, if you wish, doing whatever we want. And if I do something, I imagine that its effect or impact on others is not that significant. Whereas if I were a pre-modern person, I would see that if I did something wrong, it would not only affect me, but it would affect my family, my neighbors, and others. And if I thought about it long enough, it would affect the next generation or generations after that. But we don't think that way anymore. We are modern people. We're simply a collection of individuals. We're free to be heretics, which means ultimately we're free not to believe. The third third mark of the modern society is a difference in the way we look at what is a good life. What is a life well lived? In the pre-modern Christian world, it was assumed that the meaning for this life was not found here, but it was looking ahead to the life that came after this, eternal life. We talked about this in the series on creation, the telos. And so there's a tension between the already, but not yet. I'm already here, but I'm not yet the person I will be when I'm in the presence of God. This life is good. It may be hard, but this isn't the end of the story. So this is what I have already, but I don't have the thing that's all not yet come to pass. And so there's this tension in the way that people thought. But there was also a very strong connection that what I do, in fact, will impact what happens in eternity. Um, Certainly not a Christian movie, but in the movie Gladiator, uh, the hero says that what we do in this life echoes in eternity. It's a very pre-modern way of looking at things. That what I do now, in fact, is not limited to this life. So, in this life, some people may have a very lowly position, and some people may have a very high position. But that doesn't ultimately matter, because this isn't the end of the story. We're all working together as a common group of people on something that does not end in this life, but that will continue uh, in the life that is to come. So there would, I would say in many ways, there would not be a sense of jealousy about, oh, I'm in a lowly position, I wish I had a position in the church, uh, you know, I, I, here I have a secular job, I'd rather have a sacred job. Um, not to say that people didn't think that way, but I think more that there was a sense of my life is good because I'm, I'm part of a whole. In the modern world, that's not how people think. People don't think about eternity where this is going, for most of them, this is it. You only go around once in life. And so this places a tremendous pressure on how we view the good life. And the good life ultimately is seen as here and now, period. This is it. There's nothing more after this. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the individual, because the social bonds have dissolved, to do what I think is right for me, the old follow your heart mantra, because I want to have the good life, a life that ends when I die. Number four, the fourth marker of the modern world, is how we view time. For modern people, I think we simply see things as chronological, natural. Today it is Sunday, tomorrow will be Monday, the day after that will be Tuesday, I mean today's the tenth, it'll be the eleventh, the twelfth. I think for the most part we don't we think that way. For the pre-modern people, there was something that transcended. Yes, you have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the whole thing, but you have something that transcends that. And this is seen in certain days that are seen as holy days or special days. These are events in history that set certain days apart. They are linked, if you wish, to a higher time. Taylor puts it this way. Good Friday, 1998 is closer in a way to the original day of the crucifixion than Midsummer's Day 1997. That is to say, Good Friday takes us back to that. It connects us back to that, that first Good Friday when Jesus was crucified. And so there's this sense in which time, there's a transcendent aspect. There's a higher aspect. I think for the modern world, this is simply not the way that we think. Um, Time is uniform. It is something that we measure and something we try to control. There is nothing higher about time and our social calendars except the ticking of the clock and the self-imposed burdens of our projects. I've got to get this project, I've got to get this paper done by such and such a day. Number five, lastly, one of the marks of the modern world. It's how it views reality or the natural world. The modern world finds us in a universe that has its own kind of order. It has laws, but there's nothing supernatural about it. We've figured these things out, the laws of thermodynamics and, and all, you know, gravity, all these things. We've figured these things out. There is no transcendent being who is sustaining or holding things together. And so we follow or we believe in natural laws rather than any sense of being under divine control. I'm reminded, um, years ago, uh, I was talking about this, and we sing it in the hymn I sing the mighty power of God, The Moon Shines Full at His Command. And I was saying that the reason that the moon shines full is because God is actively engaged in creation. And I remember we had a high school student at that point who was, in fact, going to a Christian high school, violently shaking her head, saying, no, that's not true. Because she had bought into, as most of us have, the idea of laws. Well, you know, you have X number of days, 28 days, for the moon to go around the earth, and then the earth goes around the sun. And so we've got it all figured out. And so the world simply becomes a universe, or if you wish, it becomes Nature not God's creation. We saw this in the series on creation, how that the modern world has shifted from creation to nature. So now, this fits in with the first thing. We are the ones who give it significance. We are the ones who imagine its meaning. We see the universe as an autonomous place. We see ourselves as individuals there is no need for the supernatural. We are not vulnerable. We are buffered. And therefore, we will take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. And like it or not, we are not, we as believers are not even like the pagans that Paul spoke to on Mars Hill or the Areopagus we need to sit down and consider, do we believe in the supernatural? Do we believe, in fact, that there is judgment, that there is a need for repentance? And do we believe that things were better when God first created the world? The Lord willing, we will look at this some more next Sunday. But let me bring this sermon to a close by confessing something. I must confess that the older I get become more and more aware of how modern I am in my thinking. And oftentimes I'm much more modern than I am biblical in my thinking. I think I first began to be aware of this some years ago, many years ago. I was watching something on cable, some episode of a Robin Hood series. And Rob and his men were in Sherwood Forest, and the Sheriff Nottingham's men were coming after him, and so they decided to set up an ambush. And what they did was they put a sword in the middle of the road, hoping that it would stop the soldiers. And sure enough, the soldiers come along and they stop because there's a sword in the middle of the road. And then the sword begins to move. And one of the soldiers says, My Lord, the sword is bewitched. And I can remember very consciously thinking, You moron, there's a string tied to it. Somebody's pulling it. And within a moment I realized... Damon, you don't believe in an enchanted world. It seems as though you have rejected the possibility of the supernatural. That, in fact, I believe that there is a rational explanation for everything. And so, for me, and, and indeed, there was something tied to the sword. I mean, I'm not. I didn't. I'm not crazy. Um, But the fact that it could be enchanted did not even seem as a possibility to me. I think it has affected us perhaps much more than we realize. One of the dangers in the modern world that we're looking at in this series is that it makes it more difficult to believe. This is something we're going to continue to look at in the Sundays to come. But today I want you to have I want you to consider one more thing before we close. That perhaps the greatest danger in the modern world is that not that it makes it more difficult to believe, but that it makes belief optional. It makes it an option. Don't have to. If you want to believe, that's fine. And that I think is far more insidious. Yes, it does make it difficult for us to believe, in that we are fighting against, and hopefully, as we go through the series, figure these things out. But more than that, it makes it an option. It's just an option. And when that happens, then the gospel ceases to be good news. It becomes good advice. See, the good news is that something has happened It has changed the nature of reality. The future is different. The present is different. And the call, the summons, is to believe the good news. But if belief is optional, then it isn't news. It's advice. You'll be happier. Trust me. You want to go this way. Instead of saying, God through his son has broken into human history this is the good news and we know how the story is going to end because Jesus was raised he was at the end of the story and came back in the middle of the story and we are to proclaim the good news but we as God's people need to make sure that we are believing the good news and not merely seeing belief as optional i think as i prepare for this series this is the great danger Yes, belief is difficult, and that's what I'm tackling. But the danger is that it becomes optional. And it certainly is not optional. Perhaps we're afraid in the academy of being accused of being binary. Everything's black and white, yes or no. Yeah, you believe or you don't believe. It's not optional. If you don't believe, here's belief. If you reject this, then this is where you are. There's no middle ground. The secular thing sort of calls to us and says, yeah, you can just be neutral. Nope. You either believe or you do not believe. You do not have the option to be in this third place. There is no third place. One last thing in closing. Ken Myers was talking about this, that C.S. Lewis was talking about the fact that. He, he almost wished that England was becoming pagan again because it's easier to convert pagans than it is modern people because pagans believe. Modern people don't. Well, before we begin proclaiming the good news, I think you and I need to, to work this out and see what is the place of belief in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we could wish that we lived in a different place or time. But as Paul told the people at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, you are the ones who have determined our places and how long our lives would be. You're the one who set limits for us. And so here we are, 2015, here in California. This is where you have put us. And there are struggles, there are issues. There are those things that fight against our belief. But as your people, by your grace and the help of your spirit, we need to figure these things out. And be reminded that the good news is news, it's not advice. And that we are called to trust you, to believe you, that your commands are right and your promises are true. But perhaps the great danger we face is thinking that believing is merely an option. Just something extra to sort of cheer up our lives on dark days. Help us to think through these things in the days to come and as we go through this series to see where we are, who we are, where we live. And how we are to be faithful as your people in this generation. On this day we give thanks for our mothers. Those women that you chose to give us life. Who raised us, who nurtured us, who taught us. We thank you for them. We thank you for their imperfections. None of us is perfect. But even in their imperfections, they demonstrated your love to us. And we thank you for that. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.